0: something that could cause us harm, something that could hurt us, we often put up signs that say danger. And, you know, danger is a a warning that there's something that could harm or even possibly kill you. Signs like, you know, danger, electrical hazard. It's a warning that hey, if you go and you touch these things, you could be shocked and you could be killed. Or danger, hot surface, which is a warning that, hey, don't touch this or you could be burned. Danger, no trespassing, and depending on the land and the person who has that land, danger. Don't go on there, you might be shot. Or, you know, danger, do not enter. A warning that what you're about to go into is something that can harm you, so stay away from it. You know, life is full of dangers, and it's nice when we have warning signs. It's nice when we're told, hey, wait a second, beware of this. This is a danger that you need to be aware of so that you don't harm yourself, so you don't get hurt. And as Christians, you know, we face many dangers, dangers that seek to harm us both physically and harm us spiritually, dangers that want to destroy our relationship with Jesus, dangers that are seeking to cause us to sin, dangers that are trying to undermine the Word of God, and fortunately for us, the Bible is full of these warning signs that reveal, hey, these are dangers that you need to be aware of, these are things that you need to be on guard against, why? So that you can protect yourself and avoid them. Colossians chapter 2 is one of these chapters in the Bible full of warning signs for different dangers that come against Christians. Now, we just finished studying through Colossians chapter 1, where the focus is on doctrine. And the Paul really is focusing mainly on the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus, declared in six very important things, declared in the gospel, in redemption, in creation, in the church, in reconciliation, and in Paul's ministry. And now we're coming into chapter 2, and Paul is transitioning from really focusing on doctrine to now focusing on dangers in the church. And in this section, he wants us to learn how to defend ourselves against the dangers that are really coming against, especially these believers there in Colossae. And the three main dangers that Paul is going to be dealing with that we need to avoid, that we need to defend against are empty philosophies, religious legalism, and false doctrine. Now before Paul gets into this defense of these three different things that we all encounter like they did uh, back in Colossae, he's going to spend the first seven verses really dealing with ten things that we need to be in order to protect us from the dangers that we face. See, the reality is there's many more dangers than just the 3 that Paul is going to deal with here in chapter 2. You know, dangers like attacks from Satan, dangers like worldly temptation, dangers like fleshly desires. And you know, the dangers go on and on. We could have a huge list of them this morning. And the great thing about what Paul is doing here when he tells us of these 10 things that we need to be is that no matter what danger we face, if we will be these things. Do what he's telling us to do. It will help protect us from the three dangers that he's going to focus on in chapter two, but also all the other dangers that come into our life as Christians as well. Now, for many people, when they go to their job, they face dangers. And so the employer, he puts up those signs to warn them of dangers that they're going to face. But there's also something else the employer often does more than just putting up signs. They give them safety equipment to wear. You know, you have hard hats, you have safety glasses, you got rubber gloves, you got masks, you got steel-toed boots, you got harnesses, protective clothing, and the purpose of all this safety equipment is to help protect you. Hey, there's dangers here. But guess what? You're going to have to be around these dangers. You, you can't fully avoid them, and so we're going to have you put this stuff on and so that when you're around this dangerous stuff, you will be protected from them if they were to come against you. And so, you know, not only do they have signs to warn them of danger, they also have this safety equipment to protect him from danger. And in the same way here in chapter two, that's what Paul is doing. He's not only warning us of these three main things that are dangerous to us as Christians. He's also giving us, you know, this, you know, safety equipment, so to speak, of these ten things that we need to be, that if we'll wear this, it will help protect us from the different dangers that we face. Now, we don't have time this morning to do justice to all ten of the things that Paul's going to deal with in these first seven verses. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first four things that Paul tells us to be. And then next week, we'll look at the final six things. And so the first four things that Paul tells us to be are in the first four verses of chapter two. So let's start by reading those four verses and see what we need to be to help protect us from danger. They say this. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Now before Paul gets into these ten different things that we need to be in order to protect ourselves from danger, he wants the, the Colossian believers to know something specific about him and notice what he says about himself there in verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Paul wants to know, hey, I got a great conflict for you guys, but it's not just for the church here in Colossae. It's for more than that, because remember the church in Colossae that they've never seen Paul before. He's never been to that church, but he also says for those of Laodicea, which is right next to Colossae, another place that Paul hasn't been to yet personally, but notice he clarifies, you know, it's it's for everyone who has not seen my face in the flesh. And so what Paul is saying is, hey, for everyone who's never met me personally, who has never had that interaction with me personally, I want you to know something about my, you know, connection with you, and he tells them something very important about him. He says, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you. Now, this Greek word translated conflict is agon. It's where we get our English word agony. It speaks of a great struggle or battle that we have. And so before Paul starts speaking about the battle that these Colossians are going through, about the dangers that they're facing that they need to protect themselves from, he wants them to know, hey, I'm battling with you guys. You know, I'm agonizing for you guys. And, you know, later on in this book, Paul's going to clarify that the battle that he's actually speaking of here is a battle through prayer. That, you know, even though he hasn't been to see them yet, even though he's not with them face to face yet, he still battles with them, that they're not alone in what's coming against them and the dangers that they're facing, that, hey, I'm praying for you guys, I'm there for you guys, I want to help you in any way I can, and and one of the ways he's helping is by writing this letter and warning them of dangers, and another way he's helping is by praying for them as they go through these struggles, but he wants them to know that, because, you know, they haven't met him, they don't know, you know, his heart towards them, and so he wants them to be aware of, before I share about this struggle that you face, I want you to know I'm in it with you and I'm there to help you get through it. And now he's going to move into starting to share some of the things that they need to be in order to help protect them from these dangers. We see the first one at the beginning of verse 2 where it says that their hearts may be encouraged. You know, the Greek word translated encourage means to comfort, exhort, strengthen, and build up. When it comes to properly dealing with dangers that we face, being encouraged is very important. Because when you're discouraged, the opposite of being encouraged, it makes it much harder to overcome dangers. You know, in a battle, one of the easiest armies, one of the easiest soldiers to defeat are soldiers that are already completely discouraged. Because when you're discouraged, you're at a place where you're just willing to give up, where you're willing to pack it in, you don't really care much anymore. And so, you know, when you're in that place and dangers and things come against you, you know, it's a lot harder to be victorious because you're already in that discouraged state that leads to defeat instead of victory. And so, As Christians, as we face these battles, as we face these dangers, we need to recognize that when we're discouraged, we're just easy prey. We're much more likely to give up. We're much more likely to be defeated in what's coming against us. So when it comes to dangers that you and I face as Christians, we need to be encouraged to properly face them and to overcome them in our life. Now the reality is, all of us at times are discouraged. There's none of us that go through life where we're always encouraged and we're never discouraged and and we always just feel that encouragement. There are times that each one of us face discouragement. I'm sure there's some of you here this morning that have come discouraged. And when we face discouragement, there are two main things that we need to look to to help us go from discouragement to encouragement. And I would say the most important thing of all is time with the Lord in His Word. You know, God's Word is full of encouragement. And I guarantee you, if you are discouraged and you regularly take time to study the Word of God, you will go away encouraged. He will help you to go from that discouraged place to a place of encouragement because the Word of God is just full of encouragement and very practical to the struggles that you and I face on a daily basis. The second main thing that I think we should look to to be encouraged is look to other believers who are those who will actually encourage you. I wish I could say look to other believers and just leave it as a blank statement, but sadly, not all believers are seeking to encourage you, so you could look to them and get nothing from them, but look to believers who are actually going to encourage you. You know, as believers, we are called to encourage one another, to build up one another, to not only look out for our own interests, but also the interests of others. And as you're struggling with discouragement, and you see, or actually as you see others struggling with that, you should say, you know, I want to go and I want to help, I want to be that encouragement to them. But in order for that to happen, each one of us needs to be those who encourage others. You know, If a church, if everyone just comes and says, hey, today I'm just coming to receive encouragement and no one's coming to give encouragement, then everyone's going to come to receive it and no one's going to get it. Because unless somebody's willing to actually offer it, then you're not going to receive it. And so if we all came with a heart that says, yeah, I need encouragement, but I also want to be someone who gives it. I also want to be that person who's the source of encouragement for others. And we can do that in many different ways. We can do that through praying for them. We can do that with sharing an encouraging verse with them. We can do that with just being with them and listening to, to what they're going through or helping in a practical way or if they're sick, you know, making them a meal or, or any of those things bring encouragement to those who are in a place of discouragement. And I found that a little encouragement often goes a long way in someone's life. It's like the little boy who said to his father, Let's play darts, all throw, and you say, wonderful. You know, I think that's kind of the heart of many kids. You know, they're just desperate for encouragement from their parents. You know, and and even if they don't do a great job, and even, you know, if you're watching, you're seeing, that they just want to hear encouraging words that you, you know, really think they're doing well or you appreciate it. Or, you know, kids love that. They need that. And you know what? When we grow up, we don't lose that. We still have a desire not only from our parents to hear encouraging words, but then with our spouse and with our friends and with our coworkers or our boss or, you know, we, we still have that desire. We want to hear encouraging words about our performance, about, you know, different things of our life. That's just something that is important to us. And so they're not just something that we enjoy. They're also something that we need. And the sad thing that I see within the body of Christ so often is that you know, as believers, instead of giving the encouragement that people need, we often just give criticism and judgment. And you know, when someone's discouraged and you're just criticizing and judging them, guess what? All that does is just make them more discouraged. It doesn't help them at all. And that's the sad reality that it is. is so often that you know people are struggling with discouragement. They're looking to another believer to help them get to a place of encouragement. And instead, they leave more discouraged because they've just been criticized and judged instead of encouraged. And so when someone's discouraged and they come to you, they don't need your criticism. They don't need your judgment. They need your encouragement. And so the second thing that Paul tells us to be, in order to protect us from dangers, is that wonderful thing of just encouraging them. We see the second thing, sorry, in verse 2. Be knit together in love. You know, the Greek word translated knit together means to join, connect, or unite with someone or something. Growing up, my, my grandmother used to knit and, you know, I kind of watched it and I would find it fascinating that she would take this ball of, of yarn or, or wool or whatever she was using. And all of a sudden, you know, she would just go and that little ball of yarn turned into a hat that I was given or a scarf that I was given. And I always just kind of found it fascinating watching that, you know, you have this long strand by itself. That's really easily broken on its own, but yet once it's knit together and all intertwined and connected, you have this hat that I would have or this scarf that I would have that was quite strong, that was hard to break. And so, you know, when it's all connected together, it goes from something that would be easily destroyed, easily torn, to something that was quite hardy and could withstand a lot of different things. And, This is something that I think is so important for us as believers as we face danger to recognize there's such an importance for us to be knit together that we don't do it on our own. But notice that Paul doesn't just say, hey, be knit together in any random thing. You know, whatever you're knit together in, it doesn't matter as long as you're together. That's what's most important. No, that's not what he says at all. There's something very specific that he wants us to be knit together in. And so he says, be knit together in love. That is the thing that should connect us. That is the thing that should unite us as believers. The love of Jesus. So our connection shouldn't just be because we support the same sports teams or because we have a similar, you know, uh, like of music or because we have similar political views or personalities or whatever, you know, naturally draws us to other people. That shouldn't really be the foundation of our connection. It should go much deeper than just that. It should be because we love one another. You know, this is something that I really enjoy about the body of Christ that often differs from the world because mostly for the world, they connect only with those who have the similar viewpoints and the similar personalities. And, you know, there's just that similarity that draws them together. But when you look around the church and the body of Christ, there's just such a, you know, diversity in a good way. There's a lot of differences. There are different races and nationalities and social statuses and backgrounds and, and, you know, there's different political views that people have. There's different, you know, sports teams and music desires. And there's all these differences. And yet, if it's functioning the way it should, there is a unity. There's a connection because there's something far more important than all of that. Something far deeper than all of that that draws us together. And that is the love of Jesus. You know, Jesus says this in John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You know, one of the most important commands that Jesus has given to us to do is to love each other. And He says, you know what, all are going to know you're my disciples. Not by these other things that we so often want to connect with ourselves of, hey, we're great prayers, we're great teachers of the Bible, we're great worshipers. Yeah, that's all great, but you know what? The most important thing that they're going to see that helps them to know you're my disciples is your love for one another. And when we love others like Jesus loved us, it's a, it's a natural thing that we start to get knit together, that we get connected with one another. And when the dangers come against us, here's the great thing. We don't have to face them on our own. We don't have to be that little piece of yarn by ourselves that's so easily broken. We're now intertwined with all these other believers in love. And so when the dangers come, I'm not having to deal with it on my own. I got other people who are with me, who are praying for me, who are there for me, who are helping me face these struggles so that I'm more likely to be able to overcome them. Now many churches try to knit and unify together in things other than the love of Jesus. And what ultimately happens when that starts to transpire is really it just brings division, not unity. See, a lot of churches, that they're trying to be knit together by their traditions. That's what's most important. We're all together because we hold the same traditional view, but yet if you come in there and you don't hold to their traditions, they're not going to unify with you. They're not going to have anything to do with you because that's kind of the glue for them that holds people together. Or for other churches, it's the denomination. If you're part of our denomination, man, we will unify with you. But if you're not, sorry... It's not going to happen. There's not going to be any unity between us. And what happens, instead of focusing on what unifies, they actually start focusing on the differences that divide. And instead of being unified together, there brings more division than ever before because they're not unifying with what we all do have in common, what's most important, Jesus Christ and our love for Him and love for each other. Warren Wiersbe said this about being knit together in love. The mature Christian loves the brethren and seeks to be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. He is a part of the spirit he is a part of uh, spiritual unity in the church. An immature person is often selfish and causes division. You know, a lot of us want to see ourselves as spiritually mature, but you know, there what's just one of these kind of tests where you can look and say, spiritual maturity really is getting to a place where I'm loving others more than myself. Or I'm willing to say, you know what, my love for you is more important than the differences that we might have. That I'm more desiring peace with you, unity with you, and the love of Christ than I am trying to get my own way and wanted you to think about my traditions or having to be a part of this denomination or this way of thinking. That, you know what, I'm still willing to let that go out of my love for you and our connection in Christ. And the immature one is the one that says, it's all about me. I want it my way, I want it this way, you've got to be exactly like me, and if you're not, then I'm not going to fellowship with you, I'm not going to unify with you, actually I'm going to divide myself from you if you're not just like I am. And that's not something that should be at the heart of who we are as believers. Now in order for us to be knit together in love, there's something very practical we must do. And it's something that any relationship of love that you have, you've done it. You spend regular time with those people. You don't develop relationships of love with people you don't spend time with. It just doesn't happen. Time with people is essential for that loving connection to actually happen. And this is why in the scriptures we're given certain commands. Like in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 it says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We need to make sure that we're not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. What this is speaking about is times like this, when we get together as believers. It says, don't forsake that. Don't forsake going to church. Don't forsake getting together with other believers where you get to have this time to worship God together, to look in the Word together, to pray for one another, but ultimately to love each other. Because when you are neglecting that time, then you're not able and not willing to kind of have that loving relationship because, hey, I don't need them. I can do it on my own. No, you can't. You're just going to be that little yarn, that little strand, and you're going to be all by yourself. And when the enemy attacks, you're going to be such easy prey because you don't have anyone who's there with you by your own choice. Not because the body of Christ doesn't want you or isn't willing to receive you, but so many Christians just kind of say, hey, I'm not needing to go or not willing to regularly spend time with other believers. And so this is such an important thing. And notice this verse also says, do it so that you can in order to stir up love and good works. I mean, as we get together, we stir that up in one another and we see that love being demonstrated to each other and it's such an important thing for us to do. So the second thing that we need to be in order to help protect us from danger is we need to be knit together with other believers in love. So when you come to church, don't just have a focus on, you know, what can I get out of this today? Also come with a mindset of how can I love someone today? How can I practically demonstrate the love of Jesus to other believers to help them be encouraged and to help them just grow in their walk with the Lord? And watch how that knits you together. Watch how that helps protect us from the dangers that we face as Christians. The third thing that Paul tells us to be in order to protect us from danger is in verses three to the end of verse 2 and uh, verse 3, it says this, "...and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom, and in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Paul knew that being knit together in love is a very important thing for us as believers But love isn't the only thing that we need to be connected in. Love isn't the only thing that we need to have as believers. Something very important that needs to be connected with love is the knowledge, the understanding, the wisdom of God's truth. Love and truth go hand in hand. They need to be together together. And too often there're certain groups of Christians who just promote love and not truth, and then there's other Christians who just promote truth and not love, and there needs to be this balance of those two things together for us to operate the way that God desires us to. John Gill wrote this, Some Christians are more affectionate and less knowing, others are more knowing and less affectionate. It is well when we love and knowledge go and keep pace together and this is one of those things i think is just so important don't get so you know focused on love that you miss truth and this is where you see it you know i mean you even look at cults i mean i'm convinced that a lot of jehovah witnesses a lot of mormons that there's a sincere i want to convert you because i believe what i believe and they're coming out of love but they have no truth and so that they love but yet they're loving you and telling you things are just going to lead you to hell. They don't have the truth connected with it, so all the love in the world without truth is damning to people. And so just to be like, all we need is love, and there's a lot of churches who are going down that road of, you know, let's ignore truth. If we just love, 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 God loves, it's all that matters, then everybody's going to be happy. No, no one's going to hear the truth. They're not going to get saved, and so that's actually unloving to not have truth connected to what we're sharing. But then there's the other side of the coin where there's people who just say, I'm just going to speak the truth, that's all that matters. If I just tell them how it is, I don't care how I speak it, as long as it's a truth, then it's fine. But 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, hey, you can speak of the tongues of men and of angels, but if you don't have love, you're just an annoying noise. And so if you really want people to come to know truth, you better have love connected with it, or it's never going to be effective. It's never going to help people come to believe it. And so then you're just spewing out stuff that's really not having any impact because love is not a part of it. And so Paul here tells us that he wants us to attain. Attain understanding, knowledge, wisdom of God's truth. This Greek word translated attain means to reach, get, or acquire something. Notice what he says here. Reach, get, acquire all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom, and in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul says, hey, I want you to acquire something that is so important to have. This full assurance of understanding, knowledge, and wisdom that's ultimately found in Jesus. You know, in Jesus Christ is where there's a wealth of understanding, where there's a wealth of knowledge and wisdom that we as believers desperately need to know. Especially if we seek to protect ourselves from the dangers that come against us. As we looked at last week, one of the biggest targets of things that come against Christianity is Jesus. And so if we don't have a good knowledge of Christ, if we don't have the truth that's connected with Jesus, wisdom, understanding with that, we're gonna be, you know, in trouble because the things that people want to ultimately uh, undermine and destroy are connected to who Jesus is, connected to what Jesus has done. I mean, people want to attack Jesus' humanity. They want to attack Jesus' deity. They attack Jesus' teachings. They attack Jesus' death. They attack Jesus' miracles. They attack Jesus' resurrection. I mean, anything associated with Jesus is being attacked. And so for believers, we really need to have this truth that is in Christ. It is so important for us to understand. And this is interesting that Paul, you know, we'll see through this letter that knowledge is something he keeps speaking about. Because remember, one of the big heresies that was coming into the Colossian church Came from the groups that called themselves Gnostics, and for them, knowledge was like the key. That's that's where you know salvation comes from. It's not ultimately what Christ did for your sin. It's this knowledge that you have that will bring you salvation. And it's interesting here that um, the Gnostics told people to seek the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They were all about it, but they did not say seek it in Jesus. According to Gnostics, knowledge was hidden in their own book of knowledge. Now here's something I find very interesting. The Gnostic called this book of knowledge Apocryphos, which means hidden. And here, Paul uses the word hidden and he specifically chooses Apocryphos. He could have chosen different words that could have been translated hidden when he says this knowledge, wisdom, uh, and understanding is hidden in Christ. He uses this exact same word that the Gnostics were saying, ooh, our hidden Apocryphos book that has all this knowledge that's for the special few that know this stuff and we're the ones who are truly saved. Sorry for the rest of you that don't have our special book and the special knowledge that's hidden inside of it. You guys don't have what we do. You guys can't. 't be saved like we are. And so Paul purposely uses this word hidden when he speaks about actually knowledge isn't hidden in your stupid little book. Knowledge is hidden in Jesus Christ. That's where it is. That's where you seek it. That's where you find it. It's not just for the few who have your book. It's for all who are willing to put their trust in Christ. And so Paul is targeting with this word, specifically this Gnostic heresy, that knowledge comes through our hidden book and all that's in there, when the reality is, no, it is all hidden In Jesus Christ Himself. That is where the understanding, the knowledge, uh, the wisdom all lies. That's where we need to seek it because that is where it is. So we need to grow in that knowledge if that's so important. Well, how do we do that? Two of the most practical ways to grow in the knowledge and wisdom and understanding of Jesus is to study the Word of God. It's all speaking about Him. You know, the Old Testament is all... Pointing to him, the New Testament is all speaking about him. Throughout God's Word, you will gain so much insight, knowledge, and understanding of Jesus as you just take time to study it. But something else I think is very important to do, which the Word of God encourages us to do, we need to ask God for that wisdom and that understanding. You know, recognize these are spiritual truths. It's not just gain because I'm smart and because I read a lot of the Bible. No, it's gain because God opens my understanding through his spirit. And so I need to actually recognize, Lord, I need your help here. I want to know as much as I can about Jesus. I want to see these things through your word. And so I ask that you would reveal them to me. So the third thing that we need to be to help protect us from danger is we need to be continually growing in our understanding, knowledge, and wisdom of Jesus, Here's the reality. The more time you spend studying the truths of God's Word, the more effective you are going to be in dealing with a lot of these dangers, because so many of them for us as Christians are connected with trying to destroy and undermine things connected with Jesus Christ. And so the more you're aware of that, then the more you'll be protected of those things that come against us as Christians. The fourth and final thing that we're going to look at this morning that Paul tells us to be in order to protect us from danger is in verse 4. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Paul says, now this I say, meaning the reason I've just said that you need to gain understanding, knowledge, and wisdom in Jesus is because I don't want anyone to deceive you with persuasive words. The Greek word translated deceive means to intentionally trick or mislead someone. And the Greek word translated persuasive words means convincing words to influence or sway someone's thinking. One of the most effective ways to deceive someone is by using these persuasive, convincing words. These persuasive, convincing arguments. If it's not persuasive, if it's not convincing, you're not going to deceive very many people with what you're trying to deceive them with. And so, you need that persuasiveness, that convincing argument to help people not see how they're being duped. A lot of people struggle and have been deceived. You know, when I was younger, my brother was, and still is, a very persuasive person in his words, And, you know, there were many instances where I was deceived by him because he was so good with the way in which he said things and his arguments of things. And I remember one Easter, uh, my uncle put on this Easter thing in our neighborhood. And, you know, normally you're hunting for eggs. Well, he got plastic eggs and he put money in every egg. And most of it was just change, just pennies. And so I was quite young, my brother's four years older, and all these kids are just going through trying to get as many eggs as they can so they can get as much money as they can. But I pick up an egg that I think is empty, and I don't realize that there's actually a $20 bill in it. And so we all come back with our eggs, and I have a small pile. My brother has the biggest pile, and we're pouring out all the change that we have. And he's got this huge pile of change, mainly pennies. I got this little pile, but I got a $20 bill in there, and my brother sees that. And then all of a sudden, he's like, Oh, Matthew, you know what? You're so young and you weren't able to get all the same kind of eggs as me. And I want to give you my really big pile here and I'll take your small pile because I love you. And I knew I, you just didn't weren't able to get as much as me. And then why don't you have that? I'm thinking, Oh, this is so great. He's looking out for me and he's giving me all this stuff. And I probably got like a dollar out of it. And he gets 20 bucks and his little persuasive argument deceived me and ripped me off. But. You know, my brother's not the only person who is good at that. There's a lot of people in our culture. I mean, we have people get paid for a living. Lawyers, you know, that's basically what defense lawyers do. You know, they're all about, you know, they know many times that their clients are guilty, and so they need to try to convince a jury that their client's innocent. Well, how am I going to do that? I'm going to use really persuasive arguments. You know, and oftentimes they are effective in that. They have a guilty client And yet they convince a jury that the client's innocent through the arguments that they put out there and it's very persuasive and, you know, but ultimately they know that that is not the truth. You know, something I've been seeing from, you know, my childhood to now is just a real drastic change in how much deception is going on in the culture that we live in. I mean, it's becoming more and more apparent. It's always been the case with politicians and lawyers. I mean, that's, you know, from time that they kind of got into those roles, they are deceivers and they're great at persuasively telling you things to try to get elected or to try to get people off, you know, from being convicted. But you know what? We're starting to see more and more people kind of joining the ranks. You know, I mean, on social media, there's a lot of purposely put out false things But many people are doing it in a persuasive way. And you can kind of tell who's more persuasive than others. You know, those that go viral, they're usually the ones that have pretty persuasive arguments. But a lot of them still are just completely false. And the biggest thing that's a a struggle that I see is we're seeing within the news media itself and journalists. You know, when I was young, there was like this integrity of like, we want to be those that come out with facts and truth. But now a lot of journalists are just like, hey, we don't care. We will purposely bring out lies in order to deceive people and they do it and they are uh, they do it and and are able to do it ultimately because of the persuasive way in which they put that out there but our greatest enemy is not all these things that i mentioned we got one who's an even better deceiver than them all and that is satan he's our ultimate enemy and he is the most persuasive liar there is the bible tells us in john 8:44 you have your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. Notice what he says. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. I mean, this is Jesus speaking about Satan. There is no truth within him at all, Jesus says. Not only is he a liar, but he is the father of lies. He is a master liar. He is very persuasive. It started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and he was able to persuade them with his persuasive argument to go against what God told them to do and to sin and ever since then he has been very effective in lying to us the human race and getting us to do things that we shouldn't do because his arguments are very persuasive. You know the Bible warns us that in the latter times the times that we live in that deception would actually increase. First Timothy 4, 1 and 2 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Something we just need to be aware of. And I talk with some Christians that are like shocked and surprised that this culture is trying to deceive them. But we live in a world that is seeking to deceive us. And we have an enemy that is seeking to deceive us. And some people are not very persuasive, and it's obvious what they're doing, but others are very persuasive, and Satan is always very persuasive. And so we need to recognize this reality that there is an attack on us, seeking to deceive us, excuse me, through persuasive arguments and words. You know, I think it's interesting that once you recognize that, you become more on guard. When you realize, hey, there are people trying to deceive me. Once I realized when I got a little older and my brother you know, ripped me off and then he's been doing that my whole life, I started to be on guard. Hey, I'm not falling for your tricks anymore. Nate. I don't care what you say. I don't believe it anymore. You know, We get to a place where it's like, hey, I'm on guard now because I recognize there are sources out there trying to deceive me. And maybe even how they say it, it sounds good, but yet I'm going to be skeptical of it. Because I recognize what's going on. And, you know, I I think it's interesting what has happened with the news media because more and more people, you know, are throwing out the words fake news. But there's a reality that across our country, there is not the same kind of confidence in journalism that there was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Because journalists now, it seems like all I care about is being the first one to give the story, not the one who actually gives facts. Who cares about the facts? If I get the story out there first, that's all that matters, and we seem to see that. And then there's others, I think, that are just purposely, we just want to lie. We have our own agenda, and we're just going to tell you what we want to tell you, and we don't care that it goes against the facts. We don't care that it goes against the truth. And so now we have a bunch of people It's like, I don't believe the news anymore. And so what are we? We're on guard. We recognize that, and we hear some news, and we're like, I don't know if I'm going to believe that. I don't know if I can trust you guys anymore because I've seen too many times where you said this, and it was proven to be false. And I think it's a good thing for us as believers to be in that place of, I am on guard because I realize there is this bombardment against us to try and deceive us. But, you know, we need to go beyond just being on guard. It should do something else for us as well. Okay, I don't want to just think, well, uh, well, how do I know when they're lying? That's going to be like the real question. You know, yeah, I'm going to be skeptical, But but what do I come to to really know what is truth and what is not? And this is especially with the most majority of the the onslaughts that we're getting as Christians. We need to come back to God's Word. We need to recognize and study it and know what it says and be in it because that's the source that's going to help us see what is true and what is false. We see a great example of this if the believers in Berea. Acts 17.11 says, These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word of God with all readiness and search the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Notice here what we're told about these Berean believers. Hey, they were willing to receive the Word of God with all readiness. They, they wanted the truth of God's Word. And the person who's teaching them is the Apostle Paul. But yet, notice what they do with Paul's teaching. They didn't just sit back and say, Paul said it, it must be true, I'm just going to receive it. They searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether what he said was true. And that should be the heart of all of us. That says any person is fallible. So we should be willing to say, I am going to search the scriptures with what I say or if anyone else says, I'm going to go back to the Word of God, and I'm going to make sure what they say coincides with the Word of God. And if it doesn't, then I'm not going to believe it. Then no matter what kind of role of power, no matter how popular they are, no matter how many people bought their book, that's irrelevant. What's most important is: does it coincide with God's truth? His word? And if it doesn't, then that should be the ultimate deciding factor for me that reveals what is true and what is false. So the fourth thing that we need to be to help protect us from danger is we need to be on guard and in the word in order to not be deceived. The danger of deception is real, and it has impacted a lot of Christians. So be aware of it. Be aware that it's coming, and instead of being its victim, Get into the Word of God so that you can be victorious over it. You know, another way to protect ourselves from danger is really not in Paul's list. Something that Jesus tells us to regularly do. And oftentimes we don't really look at it from this side of the coin. of It's actually a protective measure. Jesus tells us to regularly remember what He's done for us to remember His sacrifice on the cross for us, to remember the love that that demonstrates to us, to remember what He did to ultimately make it possible for us to be saved. And we look at that as a remembrance of thanksgiving, a remembrance of blessing, a remembrance of all these positive things, which it is. But there's another side of it where I think that remembrance also is protective towards us. Because the most attacked things in Christianity are what we're remembering. Satan does not want us to believe the truth of who Jesus is, that he's God, of what he's done, that he died on the cross for your sin and for mine, that we can be forgiven, that he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death, that it clearly demonstrates how much he loves us, that he was willing to give us what is most valuable to him. And that if he did that, we could always know that his love for us is as great as it could possibly be. But think of the things that, that Satan or the world comes against us. God doesn't love you. I mean, look what you're dealing with. When dangers come and hardships hit us, that's one of the first things that Satan tries to whisper in our ear. God doesn't love you. If he loved you, you wouldn't be going through this. Well, that's not what demonstrates ultimately God's love. Whether or not he allows me to go through hardship doesn't trump the fact that he's already proven it by giving himself on the cross. That's the proof. That's all the proof I ever need. If I go through hardship, it doesn't change the fact that I've already been proven that God loves me. And so as I remember that, it's a protective measure for that lie. Or the lies that, hey, you know what, you're not saved, or or Jesus didn't do enough for you, or or whatever it is. As we take time to look back on what he's done, it helps protect us from the lies in the present and the ones that we're going to encounter in the future to help us remember, no, that's not true. So we don't want to forget that. We don't want to lose sight of that because it's really the foundation of what we believe. It all comes back to Jesus and what He's done for us. And so as we're looking at ways that we can protect us from danger, we're going to finish this morning. It's the first Sunday of the month we do this. We're going to take time just to remember Jesus' sacrifice by taking communion together. And so I'm going to have the the worship team come on up here. And before we partake together I just want to say it's an open communion meaning it's open to anyone who has put their trust in Jesus Christ if you have done that we encourage you to partake but before we do that I want to read from 1 Corinthians 11 and I read this often and it shares about you know what these you know different um, elements are symbolic of but I want to emphasize the last thing that we're told and to really give that as a challenge for us to do right before we partake together it says this. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, here's the thing I really want to emphasize. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and of the cup. You know, he gives all these things of what it's symbolic of, but at the end of the day, he gives this challenge of, you know what, before you partake, examine yourself. And really what he's wanting us to examine is, is there unconfessed, unrepented sin in your life? before we take the time to remember and thank and look back on what Jesus did to pay for our sin, to deal with our sin on the cross, is there sin that we're just kind of continuing in? Is there sin that's in our life that we haven't dealt with, that we haven't gotten right with the Lord in, that we haven't confessed to Him? And so I just want to encourage you as the elements are being passed out, as the worship team leads, that you would just take a moment, if there's things in your life that you haven't dealt with, before you partake, I would encourage you examine yourself and just confess that between you and the Lord, repent of that, and just come with a clean slate uh, as we come to this time of communion together. So let's go ahead and have that passed out and partake.